Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm speaking with Ali Nazari. He's the head of foreign relations of the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan. And his organization works tirelessly to liberate Afghanistan from the Taliban. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on your podcast today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And you guys are doing very important things. Obviously, the situation in Afghanistan has deteriorated rapid, rapidly since the Taliban retook the country in late 2021. Now, I'm curious about your organization. Um, could you provide some background on the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan and some of its goals and aspirations? Of course. Um, the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan was uh, founded on August 15th, 2021, uh, when the Republic of Afghanistan fell as the president, uh, President Ashraf Ghani, fled the country in the morning of August 15th. 2021, and thousands of Afghanistan's armed forces who were continuing their uh, fight against uh, the Taliban and other terrorist groups, they decided to continue the struggle um, on the one hand. On the other, um, Mr. Ahmad Massoud, the leader of the National Resistance Front, on that day, he had many options. Uh, he received messages from different countries. Uh, both in the region and in the West. And uh, he had the option of leaving the country like the rest of the political class. Uh, however, he, for years, uh, opted to stay away from any official position within the government. He was part of the opposition. Uh, he was demanding and asking for reforms within the uh, Republic, especially when it came to corruption, when it came to uh, the power structure, which was moving more towards an autocracy since uh, Ashraf Ghani became president in 2014. And, uh, and especially uh, since he knew that the, uh, that the dialogue, negotiations, and the agreements, and ultimately the withdrawal um, by the U.S., um, especially the dialogue and negotiations and signing a deal with a terrorist group would uh, cause the demise of um, democracy and of Republican Afghanistan and then would cause the disintegration of the government. Uh, so he uh, decided to stay. And on August 15th, 2021, uh, with many difficulties, he uh, um, found a helicopter at the airport, and instead of leaving the country, he went to the north, to the uh, Pineshire Valley, uh, which many uh, listeners might know that Pineshire is an important and strategic valley in northeastern Afghanistan, where the uh, Soviet Union, the Red Army, was defeated nine times in the 1980s and where the Taliban were unable to invade and enter that valley, that province of Afghanistan in the Northeast uh, throughout the 90s. Uh, and his father, the late commander Ahmad Shah Massoud was leading the struggle back in the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s, first against communism and the Soviet Union, after that against international terrorism. And so he went uh, back to uh, Pineshire, uh, the way his father started his trouble there, and the thousands of foreign, uh, the thousands of uh, armed forces that I stated in the beginning that uh, decided to continue their their fight, they went to the Pineshire Valley, and they pledged their allegiance to Mr. Masood, and um, since then uh, they've been fighting under the banner of the National Resistance Fronts from August fifteenth onwards. The National Resistance Front, um, basically, uh, the the vision that we have for the future of Afghanistan is to establish a democratic, pluralistic, decentralized republic where every single citizen, regardless of their ethnicity, their race, their gender, uh, their religious beliefs, are equal citizens, are considered equal citizens. So this is our overall vision when it comes to the future of Afghanistan, whether it's our armed resistance inside Afghanistan, whether it's our political resistance 
outside of Afghanistan. This is what we're resisting for, what we're fighting for. Of course, right. uh, uh, since August 15th, uh, we have continued our resistance. Um, in the beginning, it was very difficult for us because um, basically we were going against the flow. Uh, everyone, especially in the Western world, in the international community, uh, felt the fatigue when it came to Afghanistan. So there was no interest. Um, and most of the regional countries, they believe that the Taliban is a stabilizer, that the return of the Taliban, um, their interests will be taken into consideration. Uh, and that um, with the return of the Taliban, it's game over. So basically, we faced opposition from all sides uh, when it came to our decision uh, to resist. However, our decision had its positive outcomes. It prevented the uh, recognition of the Taliban um, because we challenged this idea. We showed that the people of Afghanistan are against the current situation and we even if the Taliban are recognized and they're legitimized, we will continue our struggle until we form a government that's based on the will of the people. And so we were able to bring a halt to those efforts, um, especially in the beginning. And of course, in the last two years, our, our efforts uh, have continued in, in preventing such uh, normalization and legitimization of this terrorist group inside Afghanistan. Um, and uh, we, in the beginning, in the first phase um, of the fighting, so in uh, August and September of 2021, uh, we were, of course, fighting a conventional war. Our forces were the remnants of Afghanistan's uh, national army, especially the commandos, the special forces from the police force and many other parts of the armed forces. Um, and uh, after a month and a half and two months, we saw that this uh, strategy that we're pursuing is unsustainable uh, since we don't have external support. The Taliban and other terrorist groups um, have more than $7 billion worth of arms, equipment, munitions, and so forth. We had nothing. Basically, whatever the armed forces of Afghanistan brought in to P Pineshire Valley and Underall Valley, which is adjacent to Pineshire, which also started the resistance um, on August 15th, uh, we had nothing. Uh, and so we had to change our strategy. And after um, a month and a half, uh, it was towards the end of uh, September 2021, uh, we changed it to an unconventional war. We withdrew to the side valleys of Pineshire. Uh, we allowed the Taliban to take the main valley of Pineshire just how uh, the Soviets entered the main valley back in the 1980s. And since then, we've been fighting an unconventional war. Uh, the current phase of the resistance is to challenge the enemy, uh, wherever they are militarily, is to exhaust the enemy, especially when it comes to their options, uh, their military options. Uh, which we've been uh, very much successful in doing so, um, and challenging their narrative, because their narrative after August 2021 is war has ended in Afghanistan, we've brought peace, there is no one against us, and that there is no resistance. However, in the past two years, we've actually shown this in different forms, that no, there is a resistance, uh, this is a reality, and the war isn't over, the conflict isn't over. Uh, and we've successfully shown this. And of course, uh, uh, during this phase is to prepare for phase two, meaning to garner as much resources as we can, to expand the re uh, resistance as much as possible, um, uh, and to mobilize the people in order to move on to phase two, which is basically liberating and sustaining control over whole districts and provinces within the country. Right, and I, I think what your organization is doing is absolutely admirable um you know us westerners in the news that we heard you know a lot of the the you know the big figures in government the president ashraf ghani sort of fled uh and sort of handed over the country to the taliban so it's good to see that there are organizations like yours fighting them 
hoping to liberate Afghanistan and its people. Uh, I wanted to shift over to a personal note. What sort of motivated you to join the resistance? Well, I've been, uh, I was in Afghanistan for more than a decade uh, before the collapse happened. I was politically involved. I was part of the opposition. And of course, uh, uh, Ms. Masood and I started our uh, political efforts years before August 15th, uh, 2021 inside Afghanistan. Uh, we started since 2015 and 2016 to mobilize people to bring reform within the system um, and to prevent the uh, ultimate disintegration uh, of the government. Because uh, the trajectory that we saw Afghanistan on wasn't a trajectory that would uh, bring about stability, especially political stability. Uh, Mr. Ashraf Ghani was uh, basically moving the country towards polarization uh, his egocentric uh, approach and his ethnocentric policies were marginalizing most groups. And uh, as we see a trend from 2014 up to August 2021, that as every day, year passed from 2014 onwards, we saw that um, the security challenges increased in many parts of the country. That didn't mean the Taliban started taking over areas. The Taliban up to 2018, when the negotiations started, they didn't really have much territory. They didn't have any territory. Uh, they were contesting territory, but they didn't have actual territory in their hands. Uh, and so what, what we saw is, uh, as every year passed, uh, we saw a trend, a trend of destabilization within the country and the delegitimization of the government. Because... Uh, Mr. Ghani, he uh, started a process of concentrating power in his hands in the presidential palace. The group of advisors that he had around him were from one tribe, from one part of the country, uh, and they were not making decisions that were in the interests of everyone inside the country. Uh, they were taking power even from the ministries, uh, handing it over to inexperienced individuals within uh, the presidential palace. Uh, so we saw many problems, and especially uh, as we approached the 2019 presidential elections, we, in 2016, 2017, tried to bring reform in order to uh, prevent uh, uh, another um, rigged elections um, in, in 2019. Yet, uh, unfortunately, there was no will on the part of the government to bring any reforms, and they themselves uh, wanted to uh, control the presidential elections and to uh, have an outcome that was favorable for them. So our efforts started years before that. Um, and when the negotiations started, so what? We received news uh, of dialogue in, in Doha with the Taliban terrorist organization's office uh, in the summer of 2018, that there was an informal uh, group of experts uh, who traveled to Doha to meet the Taliban. Uh, we received news of this before the meeting started. Um, and we knew that this was a start of something uh, that was concerning to us. A few weeks later, we received, received news that uh, Mr. Zalmay Khalilizad has been nominated as the uh, top uh, negotiator, as a top U.S. envoy to uh, negotiate with the Taliban and to reach uh, an agreement with them. As soon as we heard this, we knew that uh, we had to prepare. And um, we started um, our deliberations with our people, with uh, many other political forces, and we knew that uh, as soon as the United States uh, started negotiations with a terrorist group uh, and that uh, the government of Afghanistan, the political class of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan were excluded from this, it would mean the legitimization of a terrorist organization, the empowerment of a terrorist organization, and the ultimate demise of the political order and government in Kabul. 
And so we started our efforts. And and what we did is uh, Mr. Masood and myself and, and many others who were with us, we went from village to village uh, uh, throughout Afghanistan. Uh, and okay, it was very difficult to go all over the country, uh, but uh, in places that we were able to, uh, we did go uh, and and consult with our people. So we went, started from the Pineshire Valley. We went to the most remote village and started consulting with different segments of the population. And we went from village to village. And uh, we asked them what to do. We asked them uh, if uh, these negotiations caused the collapse of the government. What are we supposed to do? How are we going to defend our people? How are we going to defend our rights? What kind of government we want? And when we did propose that this is our vision, we saw overwhelming support for our efforts and that the people encouraged us wherever we went, that we, uh, the networks that uh, Mr. Masood's father had should be revived, that uh, we need to prepare for our defense, uh, that we do not trust the Taliban or any other terrorist group. And we are very much worried about our future. And so on uh, September 2019, uh, September 5th, 2019, we had a large rally, a large gathering uh, on the at the mausoleum of the late commander Ahmad Shah Massoud, which many media outlets were there, PBS was there, and you had a lot of uh, domestic and international media outlets who reported this, that 30,000 individuals from all over Afghanistan gathered at the mausoleum, and they declared Mr. Massoud as the successor of his father and gave him the mandate to prepare. So we were very much uh, making preparations uh, for August uh, 15th, 2020. Well, of course, we didn't know that the collapse would happen on August 15th, but well, we knew it was coming, especially with the negotiations, with the signing of the agreement in February of 2020 and the announcement uh, of the uh, hasty withdrawal uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, April of uh, 2021. Uh, and so basically, uh, I was part of Mr. Masood's team. Well, we, uh, I've been working with him for more than a decade. Uh, we studied together in London um, more than a decade ago. So I've been motivated to fight for democracy, to fight for human rights, to fight for equal rights for all citizens and for all of these uh, democratic and universal values that uh, we human beings uh, cherish throughout the globe today. And Absolutely. as someone who values all of this, I was uh, motivated to... Um, pursue this struggle from day one without any hesitation absolutely um and i love how you guys wasted absolutely no time you guys were making preparations and you and you took action as soon as the you know taliban uh takeover was was nearing now we talked about you know human rights and 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 the situation for afghans on the ground uh how do you currently view the situation in afghanistan what toll has the taliban leadership taken on the country and people since uh their takeover and foreign troops are withdrawn well, of course, the situation is deteriorating um, as every day passes. Um, and this is something that we foreshadowed, forecasted um, years before the Taliban came to power and days before they came to power. And even after that, that this group is a terrorist organization and they're allied with other terrorist organizations. They're not statesmen. They're not state builders. They haven't. They didn't start their struggle based on uh, a narrative of liberation that we're here to liberate the people of Afghanistan, and they never trusted the people of Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan never trusted them, and never supported them. This is why, throughout the past twenty years, uh, we never saw uh, the population the masses, the people of Afghanistan, citizens of Afghanistan, support the Taliban or their efforts. The Taliban were at their maximum at 80,000 forces, and even less than that, but uh, with foreign fighters and so forth, uh, and, and the support and help that they received from 
uh, countries like Pakistan, we could say at, at their peak, at their zenith, they might have been at 80,000. In a country that is over 35 million, uh, one. Two is not even, even a single village in the past 20 years rose up uh, in, in support of the Taliban, that we saw a major uprising within a small village uh, throughout the country. And uh, in, in whether it was in urban Afghanistan or rural Afghanistan, we never saw an uprising against the Republic, an uprising against uh, international forces inside Afghanistan. Or we didn't see any uprising in support of the Taliban and their narrative and their aims and objectives. This is, this is what we face in the last 20 years is very different than what Afghanistan faced in the 1980s when the Soviet Union invaded. When the Soviets invaded and the communists took uh, power through a coup d'etat, the whole country rose up against them. It was a major uprising, a nationwide uprising. It started from the cities. We saw major uprisings within the cities and then it started spreading throughout rural Afghanistan. And it continued up to the time the Soviets were in Afghanistan and the communists were in power. The same we saw in the 19th century when the British uh, invaded Afghanistan. Both times, the people rose up against the British. However, in the past 20 years, we did not see that. So history didn't repeat itself. And the whole uh, myth that, well, this was a repeat of history of what the Soviets faced in the 1980s and what the English uh, and, and, and others faced in the 19th century is completely false because the people of Afghanistan didn't rise up uh, against the Republic and, and uh, international forces throughout the 20 years. And the people in Afghanistan didn't want the Taliban. In, in the last few years, we lost 70,000 forces fighting against the Taliban the years prior to August 15, 2021. So there's many signs that falsify the whole claim that, well, the people of Afghanistan didn't want democracy, they didn't want, they didn't want a republic, that they were uh, against the situation, they were against uh, uh, these values, universal values or democratic values and so forth, and that they were for a, an extremist uh, type of government. And so basically, the Taliban, as soon as they took power, they haven't been serving the people because they didn't take power to serve the people or to liberate the country or to set up a new government and to create state institutions and to bring the rule of law and so forth. And the conditions that the Taliban have created since August 15, 2021 has basically deteriorated the standard of living. It has increased the line of poverty. So we have more uh, people under the line of poverty today in Afghanistan than any time in our history. We are experiencing, experiencing the worst humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan's history. We are uh, facing a political crisis because we don't have any government. Uh, basically, the country is, a, is in a state of anarchy. The country is divided into territories and fiefdoms between different factions of the Taliban, different commanders, different factions and and um, um, uh, in, in individuals uh, within this terrorist organization uh, who are exploiting the population uh, and uh, are trying to extract as much resources as possible, trying to cultivate as much drugs uh, and, uh, uh, well, of course, illicit drugs as, as much as possible and, and to um, export it outside of the country. And in each of them, they have their own set of rules and so forth. Uh, and and basically there is no institutions. Uh, so we are facing a political crisis. We're facing an, a security crisis because we don't have any security forces anymore. There is no, uh, no police force. There is no national army. There is no border guard. Basically, basically the borders of Afghanistan are unguarded. And this is why we've seen an influx of thousands of foreign fighters, of terrorists, inside the country. Uh, we have more than 21 terrorist groups operating inside the country, all verified by recent reports coming out from the Security Council, the United States, the United Nations Security Council. Uh, they, there was a EU report that came out and many other reports, of course. Uh, and what we see is 
the situation is uh, very much going to cause uh, a catastrophe that will have a global impact, will have an impact on global stability and security, not only a negative impact on us, but on a global scale, it will uh, impact everyone's uh, uh, national security and stability. Because what the Taliban are doing is they're intentionally exacerbating the situation. As long as Afghanistan faces these crises and as long as the international aid is being sent to Afghanistan, they're exploiting this. They're misusing this. Uh, as many credible reports have come uh, uh, have have been coming out. For example, uh, more than a week ago, there was a report that was published in, in in foreign policy highlighting this, and they were using a report from uh, USAID that the Taliban are exploiting international aid coming into the country. And what it what what this is doing is the Taliban are both uh, enriching themselves to. The burden of governance is not on their shoulder, it's on the shoulder of the international community, because as long as international aid is coming, um, the Taliban will, well, they say, well, look, if aid is going to increase or decrease, it's, uh, it, it's, it's their responsibility, not ours. And uh, this creates uh, many uh, excuses for them, for their, for their, uh, 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 lack of governance and so forth. Um, and three, as the humanitarian crisis increases, it will create a wave of migration, especially the westwards, because right now the Taliban are not guarding the western borders and they're allowing the refugees to go westwards. And they know that this wave of migration will give them a political leverage uh, in the future. And what what it's doing is, um, and this is something that was verified by the UN Security Council report uh, in June is uh, the Taliban are distributing passports and identification cards to foreign fighters that are inside the country and the terrorist groups that are in the country. And it will allow these foreign fighters to start infiltrating outside of Afghanistan as refugees. When it comes to the human human rights situation, of course, uh, it's it's in a dire situation today. Um, the Taliban have completely erased women from public life. They've taken, their, they've stripped women from all their rights. Their basic rights have been taken away from them. Uh, and it's not only education uh, to, to worry about. It's every single right that a woman should have. Uh, and besides women, the rest of the uh, population as well. Um, right now, the Taliban have created not only a gender apartheid, but they've created an ethnic apartheid. Afghanistan is a country uh, made up of uh, ethnic minorities. Basically, it's a rare country where you don't have a core ethnic group. You don't have an ethnic majority. There is no one inside the country that makes up 50 plus, uh, more than 50% of the population. So it's a country made up of ethnic minorities. However, one ethnic group and a few tribes within an ethnic group, they make up uh, more than 96% of the Taliban's uh, organization. And those are and the uh, so Pash Pashtuns, right? Yes, all, and not all Pashtuns, only a few tribes within the Pashtun ethnic group. And so it's a gender apartheid and an ethnic apartheid that the Taliban have created. And human rights violations, uh, there was an Amnesty uh, International report that came out in June verifying all of this. And we've basically um, prepared reports and, and, ha and have been sending it to many organizations, including the UN's Human Rights Commission of uh, the Taliban's uh, war crimes, of the Taliban's crimes against humanity and other human rights violations. Um, right now, thousands of youth are in prison throughout the country, people are being tortured, people are being persecuted and oppressed. And of course, going back to women, uh, they have been deprived from all of their rights, for example. And the Taliban, they've uh, quote unquote, considered themselves a religious movement. 
they've deprived women from practicing their own religion, deprived women from uh, praying to God because most of Afghanistan, uh, they don't have modern plumbing, um, especially um, the population that is mostly deprived and they're um, below the line of poverty. Their um, homes, they, they lack modern plumbing. So they have to, um, whether it's men or women, they have to use public baths to bathe themselves. And in the religion of Islam, uh, you have to bathe yourself uh, and you have to be pure in order to uh, uh, pray to God and to practice the religion. The Taliban for the past year haven't been allowing women throughout the country to use public bath. So what is going to happen? When women aren't able to use public bath, that means they aren't able to bathe themselves. That means they aren't able to pray to God. They aren't able to practice their religion. The same individuals who consider themselves a religious movement, an Islamic movement, and so forth, they're depriving people from practicing Islam. So this is the human rights uh, situation. And again, other minorities, religious minorities, unfortunately, the Taliban are erasing Afghanistan's diversity when it comes to the religious and sectarian diversity within the country. Uh, for example, uh, the persecution and the uh, oppression that is on the Shiite minority today, whether it's the uh, Twelver Shias or the Ismaili Shias, for example, in Badakhshan province in the Northeast, the Taliban um, over, uh, there, they've been persecuting the Ismailis. They consider the Ismailis as being non-Muslim, as being infidels. And what they've been doing is forcing Ismailis, quote unquote, to convert to Islam. Uh, forcing them to go to uh, mosques, uh, well, of course, Sunni mosques, and to um, uh, uh, to convert. Uh, and this is the uh, basically erasing that religious and sectarian minority or the diversity that we have in the Northeast. The same with the Hindu and Sikh uh, um, uh, minorities within the country as every day passes because of the dire conditions and situation on this minority, they're forced to leave the country. And for the first time, we might not have a Hindu and Sikh population anymore in, in Afghanistan. Of course, uh, uh, the last uh, Jewish individual inside the country left because of the Taliban's return to the country. So we, we see that uh, that that the country's diversity, when it comes to language, when it comes to ethnicity, when it comes to uh, religious belief, is being erased by this terrorist group. And for this reason, the resistance is growing because as every day passes, the people are showing more resistance, more support for our efforts, more support for our struggle and resistance, and they're joining it as every day passes. The reason why the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan since uh, August uh, 2021 has been able to expand from two provinces to more than now uh, 12 provinces throughout the country is because the people are joining our struggle. They are convinced that this is the only way to liberation. This is the only way where we can live a, um, uh, a life with dignity, a life with rights and freedom. And wherever we, uh, where, uh, uh, wherever we expand to, it's based on the invitation of Afghanistan's population, that the people in a certain area, they invite us to come and set up our bases there. And so basically, without with empty hands, the National Resistance Front has been able to expand since August 15th because the people in Afghanistan support this struggle. The people in Afghanistan want the rights and they want democracy. Right. And... It's 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 unfortunate to see the Taliban control has really sent Afghanistan towards a downward downward spiral, but at the same time, you know, the population is becoming more, uh, you know, upset with the situation. Uh, they want to liberate themselves from the Taliban, um, so they are clearly upset uh, accepting your vision with open arms. 
Now I want to discuss, you know, ethnicities and women in just a second, but I'm just curious, you know, you mentioned people are, are opening up your organ, they're accepting your organization with open arms. Uh, I couldn't find a direct uh, answer on this, but is there any area in Afghanistan that you currently control and what is your approach and strategy to, to fighting the Taliban militarily and, you know, what challenges has, have you faced there? Of course, we control territory. We control territory in remote places. Um, as I mentioned, uh, in towards the end of September 2021, we withdrew from the main valley to the side valleys of Pineshire to other remote areas along the Hindu Kush um, and, uh, mountain range. Uh, and uh, we, our bases are inside, our uh, military uh, um, command and control is inside the country, our uh, military officers and commanders are all over uh, those areas. Um, however, our, during this phase, as I mentioned, it's an unconventional war. So our aim isn't to add territory, isn't to liberate and sustain control over territories. We've actually liberated districts uh, in the past two years. Um, last year and uh, this year as well. But our aim isn't to sustain control over them. When we liberate new areas, we stay for 24 hours and then we with withdraw because that we're not in phase two yet. And the reason we do this is at least to show our capabilities of liberating areas. It's something that we've been able to achieve within a year after the formation of this resistance. It took, it took the Taliban more than uh, um, 13, 14 years to show such an ability. Uh, but it took us within a year to show this. Uh, the reason why we're, we don't sustain control is we still need time to gather as much resources and to prepare and to mobilize in order for us to do that. And, and speaking of that, have you received any international support or anything like that? Um, I know you mentioned there was some trouble there, but have, have any foreign governments provided aid or reached out to you guys? Unfortunately, unfortunately no. Uh, we are not receiving any external support from any country, uh, especially when it comes to material support. Uh, and uh, this is one reason why we haven't been able to, meet, uh, to move on to phase two. Of course, this is going to cost everyone who is in this uh, wait-in tea uh, approach and policy. Uh, because ignoring or avoiding Afghanistan is going to have catastrophic uh, impact on the interests of many countries, whether in the region or in the international community. And we saw this back in the 90s. It's going to happen in a much worse scale this time. As I've mentioned, um, uh, today we have more than 21 terrorist groups operating inside Afghanistan. We have uh, more than 13, 14,000 foreign fighters from all over the region, from South Asia, from Central Asia, from the Middle East. And we have the evidence, we've actually put up the evidence that uh, there's Arab speakers from the Middle East, North Africa, there's people from Central Asia and, so, and South Asia and, every, and many other places who have coalesced inside Afghanistan. And they are in Afghanistan um, with the protection of the Taliban. And we saw last year, at this time of the year, when Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed um, by a US drone strike, less than a mile away from Afghanistan's former presidential palace. So in the heart of Kabul. Uh, and uh, the current leadership of al-Qaeda is inside the country. And again, this is all verified by the UN Security Council report that came out in June that the Taliban's relationship with these terrorist groups, especially al-Qaeda, is strong and symbiotic and uh, it is expanding. And basically the return of the Taliban have once again turned Afghanistan into a hub and haven for international terrorism and for regional terrorism. Uh, and this has emboldened um, uh, global jihadism uh, since August 2021. And now, uh, why I, I gave this uh, this uh, context is because National Resistance Front today isn't fighting 
an internal war. It's not fighting a civil war uh, for the international community to ignore us and to avoid us and to prevent any uh, form of support or assistance. Today, we're con continuing the global war on terror. The global war on terror did not end when the United States decided to leave and abandon Afghanistan. It continued, and it's at a new phase today, and it's a, in a much worse phase. Just imagine, what was the objective when uh, the United States entered Afghanistan in 2001? It was to defeat Al-Qaeda and other terrorist forces and to prevent Al-Qaeda from using Afghanistan and other terrorist forces from using Afghanistan once again against the interests of other countries against uh, and, and to plan and facilitate attacks against uh, the national interests of uh, other countries. However, if we're seeing uh, the situation not only return to the situation of 2001, but has returned, we see it, that the situation is much worse than it was in 2001 um, because you have 21 terrorist groups inside the country. You have a much more experienced and emboldened uh, terrorist force within the country. Uh, and uh, it is going to uh, deteriorate. And the only forces fighting international terrorism is the NRF, is the National Resistance Front. Again, verified in the United Nations Security Council report last month that the uh, National Resistance Front is fighting regional and international terrorist groups within Afghanistan. So not only the Taliban, we're fighting ISIS, we're fighting Al-Qaeda, we're fighting regional terrorist organizations that is threatening um, the uh, stability of Central Asian republics and of South Asian countries and so forth. And so right. this isn't a fight only for our freedom. It's not a fight only for our security. We're fighting for the security of many regional countries, we're fighting for the security of Americans, we're fighting for the security of Europeans, and so forth. And why should we be fighting this all alone? We're not asking for boots on the ground. This is this has never been our ask. But when we're fighting for the interests and security of humanity, not only for Afghanistan, for humanity, it we should be receiving some form of support uh, and when we're continuing the global war on terror. Yeah, like like you mentioned, the, the the work you're doing, the fighting you're doing is, is really keeping the world safe. So um, I would like to thank you for that, of course. Um, just backtracking just a little bit. Um, you expanded on this just a little bit, but I'm just curious, you know, as you mentioned, Afghanistan's uh, there's no really one singular Afghan identity. And, and bear with me here. I believe there's, you know, the country is made up of tons of different ethnicities. Uh, you got Pashtuns, Tajiks, uh, I think Uzbeks. I think there's another group called the Hazaras, but correct me there if I'm wrong. Um, how do you plan on creating a united, stable, and secure country? You know, what kind of government will you set up and what's your vision for, um, you know, the future Afghanistan once the NRF takes over? So for this reason, uh, we have a different vision of a democratic Afghanistan. We believe a democracy did come into Afghanistan after 2001, but the democratic system did not take the realities of Afghanistan into consideration <clears throat> for a few reasons. One, it created, after 2001, it created a highly centralized unitary presidential system where the president was a king-like figure. Basically, the head of all three branches of government was the president. Uh, and all power and authority was concentrated in the hands of the presidential palace. Basically, the president made decisions for localities and remote areas far away from Kabul. It made decisions for the provincial authorities. It made decisions for ministries. It made decisions for everyone. It um, controlled the budget. It controlled everything. It wasn't accountable to anyone. And... This is disastrous in a country so diverse, in a country so remote and mountainous uh, and, and geography that Afghanistan has and the history that Afghanistan has where country for thousands of years uh, 
was very much throughout the centuries was ruled by more decentralized political orders. <clears throat> and so this highly centralized political system wasn't the right political system for democratization in Afghanistan. What we believed was, and we still believe is, an upward um, uh, system where the central government receives its legitimacy from the peripheries, from the local governments, from the provincial governments, instead of the provincial and local governments receiving its legitimacy from the central governments. And for more accountability in those layers, for example, in the past 20 years, provincial governors were appointed by the president. The president appointed people who was loyal to him and was accountable to him, not to the people. The same with district governors, uh, same with uh, police chiefs, but same with many other officials who made decisions. So everything was tied to the interests of one individual and that was the president. This is why we were asking for a more decentralized system where the local governments and the provincial governments would be strengthened. You would have uh, provincial and, and local elections and basically, uh, we were asking for um, a system where everyone believed that they're part of decision making and that they're part of uh, uh, policy making at the end of the day. Uh, this uh, wasn't possible in the highly centralized political system that came into being after 2001. So this is, was, is one difference um, that we will bring once we liberate the country is this time we are going to um, realize a decentralized republic, a decentralized democratic system. Two is uh, in a diverse country made up of ethnic minorities, uh, we cannot bring about unity, we cannot bring about cohesion by uh, adopting a policy of nationalism. We believe that Afghanistan is a multicultural, multinational state. It's not a nation state. Uh, therefore, the um, official policy of the state shouldn't be to um, uh, promote uh, one national community at the cost of others uh, and to promote the and assimilationist uh, policy. We believe we should embrace our diversity and we're in a post-nationalism or post-nation state uh, world today. Uh, and we should uh, adopt a policy of multiculturalism or cultural pluralism, meaning that uh, we should promote Afghanistan's diversity instead of promoting uh, one national project based on uh, a specific ethnic identity and to promote one language at the cost of other languages, to promote one culture at the cost of other cultures. We should uh, uh, embrace this and to promote this policy instead of nationalism. Unfortunately, in the past 20 years, the government didn't abandon nationalism. Again, like many other uh, junctures in Afghanistan's history in the past 100 years. It's promoted one type of ethnic nationalism at the cost of others, which create a polarized society, which uh, exacerbated uh, ethnic grievances. And um, basically, uh, we see much more disunity at the social level today than any time in Afghanistan's history. Right. So I, I tell you, that sounds a lot better than the vision sounds way better than what's obviously on the ground now. Uh, and I want to shift over to woman. Um, obviously, when the Taliban took over, you know, everyone in the West was obviously worried about the country, but we were mainly worried about women. Um, we knew women had progressed a ton in the years that the Taliban wasn't in power. They're able to um, go for an education. Uh, they had freedom. But obviously, they took a couple of steps back when the Taliban retook the country in 2021. How do you plan on advancing women's rights? 
Of course, uh, for us, as I mentioned, um, our objective is a society that grants equal rights to every single citizen, so regardless of their gender uh, and, and other identities, as I mentioned before. And so for us, there is no difference uh, between a man and a woman. Um, and um, in society, in governments, and uh, 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 whatever tasks um, that there is, uh, men and women should be equals, uh, and there shouldn't there shouldn't be any discrimination. Uh, and we are committed to the betterment of the conditions and the life of women throughout the country, promoting education. Uh, promoting uh, women in the workforce um, and giving them equal opportunities. Um, the opportunities that men have, women should also have. And this is something that we uh, are deeply committed to and uh, we are doing our best today to improve uh, the conditions. Of course, we're not in power, so we're unable to realize many of our objectives. But once we start liberating the country, uh, we will uh, realize um, and materialize uh, our vision and our objectives for for women's rights, for uh, uh, equal rights uh, amongst all citizens. And, and focusing on liberation, many players in the international community have said that the NRF's efforts and prospects against the Taliban currently look bleak. I know phase two hasn't started yet, but do you have any response to that? How long will this how long are you anticipating this fight to take? How long are you willing to fight and are you willing to negotiate? Well, um, to give you an assessment of what we see is going to happen in the future. Uh, of course, the NRF has grown in strength and hasn't weakened. As I mentioned, we started in two provinces. Today, we're in uh, over 12 provinces. We're increasing our presence in more provinces this year. Um, uh, in the beginning, of course, we were in Pinecher Valley. This year, the fighting season that is still going on, we started our operations within Kabul city. We're in Eastern Afghanistan today. We're in Northwestern Afghanistan. We're in Central Afghanistan. We're in the Northeast. So we've actually expanded. And so we are achieving the objectives that we set for last year and this year. And uh, we're gaining in strength. As I said, uh, we're very much our recruits have increased. Our recruitment efforts, our mobilization has increased. And our efforts outside of Afghanistan have increased as well. Um, so we are showing our competence. We are showing our determination, whether inside or outside of Afghanistan. Um, but this isn't enough for us to achieve phase two as soon as possible. We need international support. Uh, we cannot do this all alone. And especially what we see, uh, uh, how we see the Afghanistan's future coming about. The Taliban in the past two years haven't consolidated power. They haven't strengthened because of all the problems. And their internal fighting, each faction is competing over power and resources. They're actually weakening. Their grip on power is weakening. And what we see is the Taliban are, start, are going to be forced to start retreating from many areas. When this will happen, I don't know, but it will happen in the foreseeable future. So this is both an opportunity and a challenge. It's an opportunity if we're prepared as the, the only democratic forces, as the only forces who are fighting all terrorist groups, to be able to use this opportunity and to liberate and sustain control over these areas that the Taliban are going to retreat. The, the coming of such a vacuum and void in parts of Afghanistan is inevitable. We're seeing it. It's inevitable. It will happen. However, Right now, the ball is in the court of the international community. If it wants to prevent a catastrophe within Afghanistan, if it wants to prevent a further destabilization of Afghanistan, it has to support the last remaining democratic forces within the country. Or else, if we're not prepared by the time this vacuum comes about, you'll have another terrorist group. You'll have ISIS, you'll have Al-Qaeda, you have another terror or TTP or uh, someone else come in and swiftly fill in that vacuum, which we're seeing those groups have the same assessment and are, they themselves have adopted strategic patience in order 
to increase their recruitment efforts and their mobilization, their preparation. So they can uh, fill in that vacuum once it comes into being. Now, I have a last question. That's, I have a last question that's a two-part question. But before I get into that, uh, would you ever be willing to negotiate with the Taliban in any capacity? Well, of course, we have our conditions. We've tried negotiations before August 15th and even after August 15th. It's a futile attempt. Uh, of course, the Taliban is still a terrorist organization. They are, they are not taking the interests of Afghanistan's people into consideration. Um, and they are monopolizing power. They, they want everything for themselves. And just look, today, uh, in the past two years, they are marginalizing their own members. Each faction is fighting against another for power and resources. Right now, the faction in Kandahar is basically marginalizing the other factions. So we're negotiating for what? So that's the first question that we ask. Um, and what are we negotiating on? Because the Taliban are going to accept democracy. They're not accepting human rights there. And just look, the international community has been engaging them diplomatically. Has that yielded any results in the past two years? No. What we believe is the only way to change is to build up that military pressure. And of course, if there's military pressure on the Taliban and we're able to liberate large parts of the country and in the future they uh, succumb to that military pressure and negotiate and back off from um, many of their demands and they sever their ties with international terrorism and um, and, and endorse uh, universal norms and values and so forth and then maybe negotiations will work but our aim right now isn't to negotiate with them it's to expand the resistance and to liberate the country. And basically we've tried, we saw that it's a futile attempt because the Taliban have no uh, will and they have no um, uh, intention to negotiate and, and to uh, create a democratic and, and a national government that represents every single citizen. And for an Afghanistan that doesn't threaten uh, the interests of outside countries. Absolutely. And, you know, they're sort of stuck in their ways. And when they're stuck in their ways, it's, it's time to take the gloves off, so to speak. All right. So my last question is a two-parter. Uh, as a human rights podcaster, I always like to ask my guests, what is the best way that listeners could help people in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan currently? And then the last part of that is, what is your message to the Afghan people? Well, my, to answer your first question to the listeners of this podcast is to spread as much awareness as possible. As I mentioned, this isn't only our fight and our struggle. We're fighting 21 terrorist groups that threaten the lives of every single human being throughout the world. If they aren't able to reach you today, they'll reach you tomorrow, as we saw in, two, in September 11th, 2001. Um, and as uh, General Corolla of CENTCOM stated uh, that uh, uh, the terrorist threat in Afghanistan will be able to directly threaten um, uh, European countries and the United States within six years to a year, six months to a year. And so this threat that we're fighting against is going to come to your doorsteps. Now, the way to prevent this is to support the last remaining democratic forces as much as possible through um, uh, engaging with uh, um, your con congressional uh, members, uh, engaging with the executive branch and with the media and, to and, and with the civil society to spread as much awareness and to advocate for uh, the National Resistance Front's struggle, which is in the interests of every single human being. This is our ask from um, um, all our friends throughout the world. When it comes to the people of Afghanistan, uh, of course, our message is that this resistance will continue, that our efforts are going to expand, and uh, we are grateful for their support in the past two years, and that this fight is for the liberation of every single citizen, regardless of their ethnic group, regardless of their gender or their ethnic group. 
and that uh, we need their support. And uh, we uh, are determined to liberate every single citizen um, that is yearning for freedom and rights. Once again, thank you very much for having me on your show today. Absolutely, Ali. Thank you so much. Your vision for Afghanistan is is beautiful, and uh, I, I wish best of luck and hopefully liberation in the future is, is near. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ali. Take care. Have a good day.